If you're on social media, sometimes you'll see these lists that go around where people put like get to know me posts that people put on social media. So it'll say, what was your first car? Who was your first grade teacher? What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And people actually answer these questions and post them on social media, not realizing that are essentially giving away those password reset questions. Introducing the protectors inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mark Solomon and Chairman of the Board Michael Carroll. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International Chairman of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am with Mark Solomon, our International President. Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm really excited for today's podcast. We have a great guest coming. He's actually the first guest that I'm actually afraid of. And I mean that in a good sense, but he, he's scary. So, <laughs> Mark, I got to ask you, though, before we start, uh, podcast number 43 is going to be coming up with our special guest today. What do you think, man? This has been going great. Yeah, Mike, uh, you know, I can't believe it's only been around a year and a half and uh, we're getting the word out to the public. Our members of the IFCI are enjoying it. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm learning stuff. You know, we bring in all these subject matter experts and, you know, I'd like to say I know a lot, but uh, there's a lot I don't know. So it's been a, a lot of fun and we hope our viewers are, are loving it and uh, we're ready to move to our next uh, topic today. Yeah, Mark, you know, we, when we talked before we started the uh, Protectors podcast, we talked about our goal was to provide training and education, not only to our members of our organization, which is over 7,000 strong, but to the public of all the frauds and scams and everything that's going on out there. And I think we've been really successful getting the word out about all the frauds and all the different scams that are out there. Yeah, Mike, I'm I'm a big fan of paying it forward. And, and like I said, we've been blessed to be a part of this organization and receive all this training and knowledge. And what I love is our members go out there and give it back to the community, help victims of crimes, and then help people not fall victim to these uh, scams and frauds and cyber crimes. So it's been a blast. And having over 7,000 members of the IAFCI, we have a lot of talent, a lot of experts, uh, members that do a lot for their community and protecting the citizens. And Mark, I'll let you take it away. Introduce our next guest for today. You got it. And this is a very special friend of ours, Mike. Uh, we've known uh, him for a long time. He's been with the IFCA for almost 20 years. He's coming up on his 20-year anniversary. And he is also the president of Government Security for Trust Stamp. And we're going to get into that company and what it does and, and using biometrics to authenticate people to make sure these transactions are safe. But he's also been a longtime advisor of the organization. He's been the co-chair for Cyber Fraud Industry Group, so many different things with the IFCI. He spent 25 years uh, with the U.S. Marshals, served in the U.S. military as a Marine for eight years. And like I said, this guy scares me a little bit, uh, even though I love him. But I'll tell you what, when he was a U.S. Marshal, if you're a fugitive, you don't want this guy on your case because he will hunt you down, he will track you, and he will get you arrested. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to our audience our next guest, Mr. John Bridge. It's a pleasure to be here on the podcast today, and uh, hopefully we can have a good conversation about account takeover fraud and multi-factor authentication. Hey, before we start, I, you know, being with the U.S. Marshals, I, I thought I saw you in that movie with Tommy Lee Jones about the Marshals. Were you in that movie? 
uh, you know, I tried to be in the movie, but uh, yeah, it didn't get past general counsel. Uh, one of those things that they failed to show in the movie. Everything has to go through general counsel. <laughs> so true, so true. Hey, John, you, you brought it up, and, and we're going to be talking about account takeovers today. Mike and I, uh, months back, did uh, an episode on this, and like I said, we got such a response that we wanted to bring in a subject matter expert on it, and you definitely are that person. So we appreciate you being on the podcast today. Um, can can we start off and just explain what an account takeover is to our audience? Maybe they're not familiar with that term. Sure, yeah. A more common term for that would be account compromise. And it's just basically when a bad actor gains control of a legitimate account. So as opposed to creating fake accounts or um, synthetic accounts, this is an actual account that a user has, a legacy account at the bank, for instance, and a bad actor manages to get control of that account. So, John, when you're talking account takeover, not only do they have the victim's PII, their name, their date of birth, social security number, but they might have or they probably have some account information like a banking account number or a credit card account number, and they're going to change that to an address they control. Is that how it kind of works? Yeah, basically the, the objective is whatever the financial gain is. So they gain control of that account for uh, either either to drain the account of funds or if it's some other type of account to uh, engage in some illegal activity. Well, let me ask you, how, how pervasive is uh, ATO fraud? ATO fraud is fairly pervasive. Uh, last year, CyberEdge reported that malware remains the number one threat, but they reported that ATO or account takeover fraud moved from fourth place to second place and may actually overtake malware in the near future. Uh, I kind of take statistics with a grain of salt as well as rankings like that, but it's uh, pretty indicative that it's a growing problem. One report in 2021 placed the uh, number of uh, people affected by account takeover fraud at 38% of the population. And losses wow. have run anywhere between 5 to $10 billion. So it's a pretty serious issue. You know, I could tell you, John, um, now being in the private sector with the financial institution, like I said, this is a huge problem for banks, uh, retail companies, uh, credit card companies. Like I said, this is this is one of our top problems. And, you know, when we look at account takeovers, it's such a broad terminology, John. Do you have some examples of types of account takeovers that criminals do uh, to target our customers? Yeah, sure. So an example of that would be financial services or bank accounts. Uh, this is kind of the typical thing that we think, of, particularly in the IFCI, someone gets uh, access to a legacy account. You know, particularly this happens with insiders sometimes as well. Someone that works at the bank that's complicit, but in, in the case of account takeover fraud, it's generally a bad actor accessing from the internet, and they're able to drain that that account of funds. So if you figure like a lot of particularly elderly people may not use their accounts actively and may not actively monitor activity in their accounts, um, those losses could be massive and not discovered for a period of time. Some other areas that are in consideration for account takeover fraud include healthcare, uh, government agency accounts, like imagine someone getting access to your IRS account, filing false tax returns and things of that nature, education accounts. E-commerce, uh, so if you have an eBay account or uh, any kind of e-commerce, Amazon.com, and someone you know ordering stuff and charging to the account that's on file. Any kind of fintech, telecoms, critical infrastructure, you know, all of these are, are susceptible to account takeover. 
Yeah, John, you talked about taking over the somebody's IRS account or something like that. Uh, I owed money to the IRS last year, so if somebody wants to take that over, that they're more than welcome. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't can, think it works. <laughs> well, John, you, you did. You know, you brought up IRS, and, and and like I said, a number of years back, my wife's uh, taxes got filed uh, on behalf of a fraudster and 28 of her coworkers. Uh, it was it was an uh, account takeover and hacking of their payroll system at the company. So, I, you know, I learned firsthand how that is for a victim who um, has a false tax return filed on them. And it, it took up a lot of time to correct. You know, we have to use a PIN number. But can you talk a little bit about the effect that these account takeovers have on people's credit and, you know, security and, and concerns uh, going forward? Yeah, the, the effects can be... Um pretty widespread. Obviously, financial ruin is the kind of the pinnacle there. But aside from just financial losses, there could be uh, loss of that sense of security or trust in the organization that I'm banking with. So there's a potential loss of faith in, in an organization that we've seen these massive data breaches of large corporations that have resulted in some loss of public trust. And then you can imagine an account takeover that involves government systems or other telecom can also be used to commit other types of crimes that may not actually have a financial impact, but could have either national security implications, or they may even be used to commit other frauds using someone else's legitimate account that makes that person look like they're the one committing a crime. So then there's a potential impact on, on that person that's not involved in a crime, but they're made to look like a crime because of that account takeover. Mm, that's a good point. Hey, John, let me ask you this. So way back when, when you wanted to verify your customer and they might have moved, you would send a letter just to verify, you know, to the new address that they actually moved. So prevent them from, you know, being a victim of an account takeover with a new address. So what I'm asking now is what are the banks and credit card issuers doing to confirm who their customer really is? Is it, is it them calling in to change the address? How do they verify that? What what are the new techniques they're using? So there's, there's a couple points where that friction comes in, where the bank wants to validate that the person coming in is actually the, their customer, um, which is sort of the whole crux of identity authentication. So whether it's calling into a call center or maybe I'm logging in to my account and my name and password is correct, but the bank doesn't recognize my device, or maybe I forgot my password, so I've got the right device and the right username, but I lack my password. So what the bank's looking for is two factors. They're looking for something I have, something I am, something I know. So the password would be something I know. The device is something I have. And then something I am would be, for instance, biometrics, which is the common third prong of that authentication. So banks typically use what's called two-factor authentication, where they're using those two factors, something you have and something you know. So if I come in to the bank and I'm um, through an online portal, for instance, and I'm trying to access from a different device, they're going to text me a message to my cell phone number so that I can prove something that I have at that point. And they'll send usually what's known as a one-time password or an OTP. It's usually a six or eight digit number that I then go in and type into the bank account login screen. And then that passes me onto my account and they authenticate the device. And it may even ask me, do you want to authenticate this device for future use? Um, just so the bank knows that this is also a device I regularly use as opposed to me accessing my account from the library. 
So that's kind of typically the process. It is subject to, you know, like going back to your example of mailing to an address, you've got mailbox surfers that may go pull mail out of mailboxes and be able to intercept um, accounts that way. The same thing can happen with email resets or even text messaging research, which which is, um, if you're familiar with the term phishing, phishing is when someone sends an email to you and they're trying to get you to click something or engage in some activity so they can compromise your account. So, John, uh, you know, that was probably one of the best explanations of multi-factor authentication. Can you, for our audience again, can you tell us the three things that the financial institutions are trying to validate about this person? You know, we're, we're so used to, you know, in the old days, people walk into a bank, you show your ID. Well, now a lot of things are being done on e-commerce or done over phones. Uh, so you don't have that person-to-person interaction. But could you explain those three points of multi-factor authentication again? Sure. Yeah. So authentication is built on something you have, which would be your computer or your mobile device, something you know. Uh, We typically think of that as passwords. If you remember before the big data breaches of the um, finance companies, we had what were called out-of-wallet questions. And that may be, you know, which bank did you have a mortgage with in 1997? And then so we don't really see a lot of those out-of-wallet questions so much anymore. Or maybe the preset questions that you put in yourself where it may ask you, who was your first grade teacher or what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then the final thing is something you are, which is your biometrics. Miss Penelope, by the way. Miss Penelope, that was my, all right. That was my, that was my teacher. So, so, oh, I shouldn't give, I shouldn't yeah. give that information hey, out. One, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. One quick point on those questions, the preset authentication questions. If you're on social media... And you sometimes you'll see these lists that go around where people put basically, basically these password reset questions are like get to know me posts that people put on social media. So it'll say, what was your first car? Who was your first grade teacher? What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And people actually answer these questions and post them on social media, not realizing that are essentially giving away those password reset questions in the form of a social media post. Hey, John, this is kind of a common occurrence now for me. I mean, I'm sure it's for everybody. You know, when I go online in my bank account or something like that, I'll get a uh, text to my phone. They'll give me the six-digit uh, code, and I have to enter it. Uh, it's just a common occurrence, right? I think it's great that, uh, you know, there's multi-types of authentication. Yeah, the one-time passwords or OTPs are pretty common. That's the six-digit number that okay. you reference. Uh, but they are subject to snishing, which is a form of phishing that uses the text messaging. And how does that work, John? So the smishing, the bad guys or the bad actors are just using your text messages in the same way they previously used emails to get you either to click a link or to reveal information about your bank account or password so that they're able to access your accounts. Hey, John, where did the word smishing come from? Smishing is a play on the word phishing, which is the typical attack that was done using email accounts. So it's a combination of SMS, which is the text message format, and phishing. So they came up with smishing to describe this type of fraud. And, uh, John, I I think the third one, if I remember correctly from my uh, days of doing uh, community talks, is vishing. And that is by voice over or uh, telephonic type of phishing. All right. So we got phishing, smishing, and vishing. Yep. 
for our audience. <laughs> Say that fast three times, that's pretty hard. <laughs> and then you have those, uh, you know, like people like to play on the same concepts. So then when they target a specific person, they may call it spear phishing. And if they're targeting someone that's got the keys to the kingdom, like an administrator, they call that whaling. So uh, they've taken that, that concept to the extreme. So, John, uh, you know, when we talk about using devices, laptops, computers, you know, they're all able to be hacked or, or infected with malware or viruses. But there's been a new tactic that these criminals are using to beat multi-factor authentication, and it's called SIM swapping. Could you explain to our audience what that is and how this tactic by criminals sometimes beats multi-factor authentication? So SIM swapping is when a bad actor is able to gain control of a victim's mobile number, and that's by obtaining a copy of their SIM card and simulating their mobile number. This allows them to intercept that one-time password that's sent by the bank in order to access their account from a different device. Another, uh, another way that this is done is actually less high-tech than SIM swapping, and that would be where I would call you and tell you, hey, hey, Mike, I'm um, John, I'm with uh, Bank of America, and uh, it looks like your text messages are turned off. Have you been getting your text messages, Mike? Uh, yes, I have. Oh, you have? Okay. So, well, um, for so maybe the problem's on our end. Let me try to push you a code real quick to see if your text messages are working and if it's linked up properly in the system, because I, I see I need to check this box here, and maybe it wasn't checked. So I'm going to push you a code. Are you ready? You ready for me to push you that code, Mike? I'm ready. Okay, all right. So at this point, as a bad actor, I'm logging into the account from a different device, and the account's going to ask me for the six-digit code. As soon as that pops up, I'm going to say, Mike, did you get the six-digit code? Can you read those numbers back to me, please? And as Mike reads those numbers back, I'm able to actually put in the numbers he's telling me and access his account. Wow. Mike, don't give me your code. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, John, let me ask you one more, though. What about uh, social engineering where, where let's say they steal a credit card out of the mail, they know the person's name and address, they could kind of go using social media to get more information on that person, including their phone number, and then take that phone number into the whatever the cell phone provider is and go in there and say, hey, I lost my phone, I need a SIM card. I've heard of that, too, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and even they sometimes the bad actors may recruit complicit employees because the employees are able to actually access without your PIN. So they they can bypass the PIN on the systems that they have. So maybe I go on social media and look for someone who's working at T-Mobile as a sales rep, and I hit them up and say, hey, how would you like to make $5,000? And, of course, they're going to be interested in that, you know, quick buck. And if I can if I can turn that employee, then I'm going to give them a list of numbers and have them batch out new SIM cards uh, based on that interaction. Yeah. And, and, you know, Mike brings up another point, too. I just, to feed off of that with SIM swapping, is uh, phone number spoofing. So um, can you explain a little bit about spoofing phone numbers and how that's used to basically defeat multi-factor authentication? So I'm not sure how phone spoofing, because I would have to be able to receive something from the bank. If I just need to be able to pretend that I'm someone, so if I were calling into the bank and they were verifying my number calling in, then if I have a good spoofing tool, that may get me past that process. There are also tools that kind of can detect the spoofing. Um, so it's kind of a cat yep. and mouse game that goes on in that space. 
Yeah, it's a little less sophisticated than SIM swapping, but you know, like I said, we, you know, financial institutions are still dealing with it because a lot of the times we're we're trying to make multi-factor authentication as quick as possible to validate the customer. So if I'm calling in from a known phone number, that might already answer one of the questions of multi-factor authentication. So if I'm able to spoof the number and they capture, let's say a financial institution or a business captures that phone number that's been spoofed, you know, they've already passed one one level of the multi-factor authentication. Yeah, definitely. A lot of times they'll even call you by name when you're calling in from that number. Right. Hey, Mark, I see that you're back. Yep. Yep, they know uh, they know a lot more about us uh, before we even say our first word on the call. It's amazing. So, hey John, when we talk about multi-factor authentication, you know, you tell us about what you have, what you know. So, next thing I like to discuss is biometrics. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how biometrics can come into play and help financial institutions and uh, card issuers to know who their customer is? Yeah, definitely. So multi-factor authentication takes that two-factor authentication one step further. And, you know, there's this constant balance with, um, particularly with financial institutions, on not increasing friction. So they want to do things in the most intuitive, low-impact way because they don't want to lose customers or lose potential customers. So the way biometrics might fit into the example we gave where smishing could intercept a code and allow the bad actor to access your account what we would do is just send a link and they just click on that link right up, right there on the mobile phone, a face capture will come up. Face is captured. It's doing in the background, liveness detection, presentation attack detection, making sure someone's not just holding up a picture of Mike Carroll or showing a video of Mike Carroll. It'd be actually Mike Carroll in front of the camera. And if it's not, that access isn't going to be granted. So if someone has access to my text messages, they may be able to respond to the message, but they're not able to reproduce the biometric in that way. Mm. And John, are there other biometrics that can be used for authentication outside of, uh, let's say, facial recognition? There are. Uh, a lot of banks, particularly in the call centers, are using voice recognition, but pretty much voice and, and face are the primary. Um, that now, if you're using an app to access your account, a lot of times they'll use the device token, which is not actually sending a biometric to authenticate your account, but just validating that you're the person that's holding the device whose biometric is registered on that device. So if I have you know, my bank app on my phone and I have a fingerprint to unlock my phone, then that can be used also to access my bank account or my health records or other things. And that's not foolproof. We've been doing it at years at Disney, you know, when you go in and uh, enter the parks, like I said, you you put your finger on the scanner and, you know, that's a form of biometrics there. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's probably some concerns. Though. I know there's been some hacks uh, on the federal level, uh, government agencies where fingerprint data was uh, stolen. And, you know, you wonder what is the purpose of that theft and what are they going to use it for? Yeah, my recollection is that the OPM data breach, which I was a victim of as well, there were over 20 million records that were exfiltrated, and 5 million of those records or more were biometric data. I'm afraid Mike Carroll's going to use my fingerprints at a crime scene somewhere to uh, get me arrested. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, John, remember uh, way back when 
you got your credit card in the mail, and then you had to go. I think you had to actually go to that that branch, and they took a picture. And it, remember when the, your picture was attached to the credit card? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think that worked because nobody looked at it. They when somebody came in and made a purchase, they just swiped the card and never even compared the photo. But I think this is great. This biometrics where when you call up to change address, check on your account with customer service, and you have a live picture of you. They can compare with the photo they have on file. I think that's great for preventing any type of fraud. I'm sure you agree on that, right? It is. I'll give it, I'll give another example because that's an automated process. So the machine yeah. is doing the thinking. You know, when we had chip and signature or even just uh, pin and signature, how many times did you ever see a clerk or, or someone at the register compare the signature on your receipt to the back of your card? Exactly. Right. I've had cards that I never signed. So many people like, uh, you know, talk about that. Or uh, I know some people that write on the back of their card, please check ID, you know. But like I said, it's very easy to make a counterfeit I- ID, you know, with the matching name on a credit card. So it's really not, that wasn't really a great attempt at multi-factor authentication. One other thing to consider on that also is that fake IDs are very easy to purchase and they're very high quality now. So they're, they're good enough that... Uh, Bad actors are creating synthetic identities dozens at a time, and they're high enough quality to fool the naked eye and high enough uh, quality to fool machine learning models as well. Hey, John, just to go back to what you said, when the account holder calls up their bank or financial institution or credit card issuer, and they do, they do a live face capture, so they can't hold like a picture up and, you know, like, this is me. It has to be, it has to be live. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Most uh, The state-of-the-art for most biometric companies today, they're doing presentation attack detection and liveness detection. So they're making sure there's a live person there. It's not a video or it's not a printed version of someone's face. This seems like it's foolproof. This is, I think this is awesome that this part of trying to verify your customer with a live face capture would help prevent account takeovers or, or, or whatever, calling up and changing the phone number or changing the address. Don't you agree? So I'm hesitant to call any technology foolproof because that makes me the fool if it's proven false. But uh, I would say that the uh, that this is miles ahead of the current state using two-factor authentication. So, John, you make a great point about being 100% foolproof. And, and there's one thing we know about fraudsters is they don't give up. They always find a way to beat some of the security uh, multi-factor authentication uh, processes that we have. I was wondering if you could explain to the audience about what a deep fake is and how it's being used to counteract multi-factor authentication. Sure, yeah. So deep fake is, is and particularly in the biometrics use case, is where someone takes a real person's face and then uses artificial intelligence or machine learning to overlay that over their own face to try to trick someone into thinking that they're someone that they're not. Uh, I'll give you a good example. You can Google this later and, and take a look, but there's a really good video by an impersonator. So if you Google impersonator and uh, deep fakes, this guy will come up. It's a great example of how he impersonates different actors and overlays his face, and the face keeps changing as he's talking in the different voices. So it's really uh, uh, puts a fine point on how accurate this can be to to fool the naked eye. When it comes to trying to fool a multi-factor 
authentication system, it's a little trickier because there are there are things that can be done to counteract that, both through the technology, the way the capture is actually obtained. And I don't want to go into any details on, you know, what kind of preventative sure. methods, because as you say, the, the processors are always learning and figuring out ways to defeat systems. But also, I think as AI matures, using AI to detect AI is something that's a real thing. And I, I teach school, Mark, as you know, at University of New Haven, and we've seen the rise of chat GPT. And I actually had a student submit a AI-generated response in my last term. And I was able to detect it using an AI that detects AI-generated content. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> hey, John, you know, I, I, I kind of worry about that deep fakes because, you know, Sometimes I get, I get confused with Brad Pitt. And, um, no, you don't. This picture, my I picture. had that problem too. There, there's, there's, there, there is no way you got seen as Brad Pitt or compared uh -huh. to Mike. Let's be honest, okay? <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, just a little more. I know you've been here for us for for an hour. We just wanted to ask you. I, I'm just concerned. Uh, about artificial intelligence and what's the future look like with that? Um, what do you see? I know you've talked about it already, but what do you see in the future? Is this good for us or, or is it something we really got to stay on top of? I'm going to preface this by saying I don't believe technology is inherently good or evil. It's all how it's applied. So with that in mind, um, let's look at the good of AI. One of the things that Trust Stamp does is different from other people in the biometric space is we protect that biometric data by tokenizing it. So we're actually using machine learning models to not only create the biometric token, but then we run that through a neural network and create a hash. And that hash retains the ability to match one-to-one -one or one-to-many. So what we're able to do then is to create a privacy or security layer on top of that biometric data while still being able to use it and retain the accuracy. Um, looking at it from the other perspective, you know, the bad actors, I think of phishing emails first and foremost. I actually um, did an experiment with ChatGPT and asked it to write me a phishing email. And it said, yeah, this is not a good thing. You're not supposed to be writing phishing emails, but this is what it would look like in Python. So, um, you know, now I, I just actually tested that this week and ChatGPT won't do it. So they've managed to like figure out that they shouldn't be telling people how to write phishing emails. Uh, but if you think about, even if I were to just say, Hey, chat GPT, can you write me an email saying I'm from the bank of Terre Haute and I need you to reset your password. Then the AI will create that email for me. And so imagine like one of the detection methods for phishing emails is misspellings and poor grammar, poor punctuation. Yep. Now you're going to have a perfectly formed email that's going to look a lot more legitimate than some of the most laughable attempts that I've seen in the past. Yeah, John, what you're saying, remember that, you know, if you get an email that's got three or more misspelled words, you knew it was fraud. Except for the emails that I get from you, Mike. <laughs> oh, 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 oh man, I love. I, we gotta bring. We gotta bring John back on for another show just for that. You know, I don't like believe I said, in spell but, check. <laughs> but John, you know, AI is such a hot topic right now in the news. It's hitting national news. There's people like Elon Musk. There's uh, CEOs of banks that are talking about it. The fears that they have. At the end of the day, these are computers, right? I mean, these are computers, yeah. and computers are always vulnerable to viruses, malware, manipulation. So um, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of good about AI, 
But like I said, there there also has to be oversight on AI. There has to be the human involvement in it, you know, to make sure somebody's not tampering with it, uh, manipulating it, or you know, uh, attacking it with a, a virus or bad programs. I mean, is that your thought too? Yeah, you know, like I and I'd like to draw a distinction real quick too, because you have like the typical AI machine learning, like the the Trustamp uses, is we're training the model on data. So what the AI is able to do then is to sort of classify data, objects, patterns, and data. So it's looking at the data that's given to it within a perspective of, you know, look for this pattern, or maybe it'll generate patterns on its own once it's looking at the data. The other type of AI is generative AI, which you might have heard of ChatGPT that I just mentioned, um, OpenAI. This type of AI is a model that is able to be creative. So it's able to draw from its own sources. It's able to go out to the internet and pull in resources from the internet. Now, there are guidelines that are put in place on what that looks like. AI can even communicate with other AI in that format. Now, a lot of times it's used to be like a virtual assistant. So I'm going to create an AI version of Mike to answer emails. And now it's going to spell stuff correctly when it sends it out. So that would be like an example of how you could use ChatGPT. But there definitely needs to be guardrails put in place to ensure that that... I'm going to give an example. There's an AI called Chaos GPT. And Chaos GPT was given the task of destroying the world. So this is where a bad actor, someone that maybe wants to discredit the technology, gave it a mission. And obviously, like its first thought was, I'm going to launch a nuclear war, and then realized it couldn't do that. So what it realized, the chat actually realized that it needed to have human interaction and get humans to do its dirty work. So it actually started posting stuff on Twitter and recognized that it needed to engage in the most typical traditional fraud technique that we talk about all the time, social engineering, right? Yep, yep. The chat realized it needed to engage in social engineering to uh, accomplish its goals. So, John, we we talk about AI and different uses for it, you know, whether it's uh, for good uses or criminal uses, you know, the fact that you could uh, write software or, you know, create a phishing email using uh, chat GPT. Could you explain uh, some of the current things going on with AI? And then what do you think the future holds with AI, both for good and for the criminal? That's a great question, Mark. And I, I just want to point out that the language model for chat GPT was trained on data through September of 2021. Um, in the future, that's probably going to change to allow real-time access to information. So that could be a, a total game changer to what the capabilities are now. But even today, you could use this technology for, like, for instance, to create a virtual assistant. So we could create a virtual mic that would not only send out emails that were spelling error-free, but actually the information would be correct as well. Sorry, Mike. Got to take the shot. <laughs> Some other use cases might be, I've got a friend that has a company that's training an AI model. So he, he took the open AI offline and trained it wholly on his own system on 600 different heavy equipment manuals. And those manuals, then he trained the, the GPT to actually be able to correspond with someone that has a repair question. So as they're entering questions in, in a text format, the 
chat is able to actually go through all of those manuals and construct an answer that explains the process for diagnosing and for repairing that particular problem. Hey, John, we talked about a lot of great things today. Account takeover, fraud, uh, multi-factor authentication, AI. But another good thing I want to talk about is Trustamp, where you work. Uh, can you tell us about Trustamp? Yeah, absolutely, Mike, and uh, thanks for the plug. So Trustamp is an identity authentication company. Trustamp leverages technology to protect the user and to validate that they are who they say they are. An example of this is our tokenization. So we tokenize the biometric data to prevent the risk of data breach. A couple of the other areas that we're doing this uh, using machine learning is in presentation attack detection and proof of liveness. So these are all just measures to make sure that the person is who they say they are. And it's not a bad actor trying to impersonate our client. All right. Love it. And John, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Like I said, so much great information to our audience and listeners. Uh, thank you for being here. And we're going to put your information, your contact information and uh, information about Trustamp on our show notes. Uh, so again, John, thank you for your service in the military and law enforcement and what you're doing now in the private sector. And most importantly, thank you for being one of our best IFCI members. So thanks, John. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, folks, uh, again, we want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in to another great podcast. Like I said, we're giving information from our subject matter experts from the IFCI and around the world so you can protect yourself from being a victim. Send us an email. Uh, our information's on the show notes. So shoot us an email. Let us know if there's a topic you want to hear about. And Mike, just to remind our listeners, too, that we are on every major podcast outlet that you could find. Yep. Just uh, type in IFCI Presents the Protectors Podcast, and it'll bring you right to our podcast. Make sure you subscribe and spread the word. We want to make sure everybody out there is safe as possible and doesn't fall victim to these types of frauds and scams. So... With that, Mike, I'm going to sign off. It's Mark Solomon from Connecticut. And this is Mike Carroll from Chicago. We will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guest opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.